you know, probably the best person to talk about suffering is someone who has suffered a great deal in life. That's always much more authoritative. And so I can't, um, you know, certainly as physicians, you will, you will witness suffering. My specialty in neurology is uh, ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. So I think for the, for the second year students here, you can uh, just imagine, you know, uh, someone in the prime of life um, stricken by a horrible uh, neurodegenerative condition. So um, I have witnessed a lot of suffering, um, but I can't claim, uh, I'm sure many of you uh, here have, have suffered more than I have uh, in life. But uh, I want to just kind of outline at least some some ways of understanding how we have an all-powerful, all-loving God uh, in a world of suffering. Um, I also want to uh, give credit to, to my wife, Dorothy, who's in the, the back of the room uh, there. She wrote a, a book chapter, which was really excellent on this subject, and uh, was very helpful for me in, in putting this together. Uh, this is a book that uh, Loma Linda Unity University Press is going to publish um, soon. So um, I'll let you know more about that when it's available. But Jeremiah is a good time to bring up human suffering because the people really suffered during this time. And I'm sure many asked, and actually many people in the Bible asked, uh, God, where are you? These are verses that we read before, but I just kind of want to you know, just set the stage a little bit for how bad it was um, during this time. The Lord spoke to Jeremiah and said, Do not marry or have children in a place like this. I will tell you what is going to happen to the children who are born here and to their parents. They will die of terrible diseases, and no one will mourn for them or bury them. Their bodies will lie like piles of, piles of manure on the ground. They will be killed in war or die of starvation. Their bodies will be food for the birds and the wild animals. So the siege of Jerusalem and the starvation and the suffering uh, just couldn't possibly be uh, overstated. Um, now, I decided we could quote many people. Jeremiah uh, complained. He asked God, what's, what's going on? But I think Habakkuk, this is, our, I think, our last Bible study of the previous school year, Habakkuk really is pointed in his questioning of God uh, on this subject. And he said, O oh Lord, how long must I call for help before you listen, before you save us from violence? This is during the same period of time. He's talking about the Babylonians. Why do you make me see such trouble? How can you stand to look on such wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are all around me, and there's fighting and quarreling everywhere. The law is weak and useless, and justice is never done. Evil people get the better of the righteous, and so justice is perverted. Okay, and, and I, you know, we could, should just read on here, but just to kind of cut to some of the, uh, his really meaty comments, he would go on and say, Lord, from the very beginning, you are God. You are my God, holy and eternal. Lord, my God and protector, you have chosen the Babylonians and made them strong so that they can punish us? And some have put this uh, verse in a question mark. You've chosen the Babylonians to punish us? But how can you stand these treacherous, evil men? Your eyes are too holy to look at evil, and you cannot stand the sight of people doing wrong. So why are you silent while they destroy people who are more righteous than they are? How can you treat people like fish or like a swarm of insects that have no ruler to direct them? I think one thing worthwhile pointing out here is, um, we, you know, the great heroes of faith in the Bible, from Abraham all the way through, um, they all had this very honest communication with God. You know, sometimes suggested, well, you know, we can't, we can't really talk with God that way. He'd be greatly offended. Well, but here we've got all of these great heroes of faith who were very open and honest with God. 
And so Habakkuk would, would continue, the Babylonians catch people with hooks as though they were fish. They drag them off in nets and shout for joy over their catch. They even worship their nets and offer sacrifices to them because their nets provide them with the best of everything. Are they going to use their swords forever and keep on destroying nations without mercy? And last year we considered God's response um, to uh, Habakkuk, which really is answered in the, in the book of Romans. So we'll, we'll come back to that, but just the, the blunt honesty. Okay, and so coming back to Jeremiah, again, just to, for the setting, the description here is that the enemy will surround the city and try to kill its people. The siege will be so terrible that the people inside the city will eat one another and even their own children. So if we just imagine living through that and experiencing it, um, you know, would it not be a, a natural, normal thing to ask God, how could you possibly um, allow something like this to happen? And I showed this picture before. It's a horrible uh, picture. But, you know, God could end starvation. Okay, certainly he has the power to feed every hung- hungry child in the world. Uh, our question is, why doesn't he? Okay, and this, uh, the word for this issue is called theodicy. We have an all-powerful, all-loving God, but yet we have a world of suffering. And why doesn't God do more? So I think maybe a first point is just to say that everyone suffers. We all suffer. Okay, Jesus virtually promised suffering. Here on this earth, earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. You will suffer. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Okay, but it's... uh, you know, the Bible does not guarantee that if you're with God, you're God's trusting friend, um, that life's going to be good. Wealth, all kinds of things. Health. Um, and in fact, if we just go through, let's just uh, quickly go through people from Abel all the way down to uh, John. Okay, we just have life stories. You know, why didn't God prevent Cain from killing Abel? What about Job? God even on record said, Job is the best friend I've got. He's truthful, he's honest, and yet look what happened to Job. Even in the end of the book, God said, Job has said of me what is right. Okay, but did Job suffer? I mean, horrible what he went through. What about Elisha? You know, there are, other than the life of Jesus, there are more miracles compacted into the life of Elisha than anywhere else in the Bible. Did all kinds of things, you know, floating axe heads, fed people, all kinds of things. But yet in the end of his life, uh, Elisha was sick and suffered and died, and there was no miracle for Elisha. Um, Isaiah, from extra-biblical sources, but would, would seem reliable that he was sawed in half in a hollow log by King Manasseh. Okay, Prophet Isaiah. Jeremiah, we talked about how Jeremiah... Uh, Everything that he did, all the suffering that he went through, his life ended stoned to death in Egypt. Um, Ezekiel, this is our book, I think we'll start next week. And um, Ezekiel, you know, his wife died during this story. And God told him, don't mourn for your wife, and it will be a sign. I mean, he suffered horribly. John the Baptist, here's, here's really a difficult one. I mean, Jesus declared John the Baptist to be the greatest prophet that's ever lived. And here is John the Baptist as a contemporary of Jesus. Okay? Jesus was just right in the vicinity when John the Baptist was taken and he was beheaded. Okay? Why didn't Jesus intervene? And of course, 
here's perhaps uh, maybe the most important point we can come to. God himself came. Did he suffer? I mean, what did he cry on the cross? My God, my God, why have you given me up? Okay, but we continue after the cross. James, of course, was killed. And this could be kind of troubling because, you know, Peter was imprisoned around this time. The people prayed for Peter, and they were just uh, overjoyed. An angel came in, took Peter out of the prison. Okay, why didn't God intervene to help James? Okay, was they have a different attitude towards James than Peter? Why was one uh, rescued and the other wasn't? Paul would talk about how many times he was whipped, how many times he was stoned and left for dead, how many times he was imprisoned. And of course, eventually he was executed. Well, okay, we come back to Peter and he was crucified uh, upside down. So eventually Peter also uh, lost his life. And John, okay, John presumably had a long life, but he was imprisoned in the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. So, I mean, is this not compelling enough that we just go through the great people in Bible history and horrible suffering? Okay, and I think, you know, we often consider, boy, the best thing that could happen, live a great life, live to an old age. But um, I just tell you, if you've, I mean, I'm sure you've all seen people, elderly individuals, and, you know, even in the best life possible, there is suffering. Um, you know, my parents are in their late 80s, and, you know, it's, uh, they've lived a great life, but there is suffering at that age, uh, unavoidably. My wife's um, grandfather died at the age of 93, uh, and died in his sleep, and the night before had a piece of cake. I, I mean, I can't imagine ending a life in a better way than that, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's pretty rare that that actually happens. Okay, so I'm, I'm sorry I'm painting a rather depressing picture here, but, um, you know, life, it really is kind of like we're on a train, and the train gets faster and faster. Uh, next year will be my 20-year uh, Reunion, graduation from medical school here. And I just hard to believe 20 years have gone by. And the train gets faster and faster. And for each one of us, it ends with a brick wall. I mean, it's just, we're all going to die eventually, right? I mean, and, uh, unless God intervenes in some way and this whole thing comes to an end, in 100 years, there'll be a different neuroscience teacher, different medical students, and it will all be, you know, entirely... Uh, lost this, this whole experience here. Well, not, not necessarily. But the point is it ends, and it ends for all of us. And the book of Revelation may not seem very encouraging on this. So we get to the fifth seal, and the people complain and cry out in a loud voice, Holy and true Master, how long? This cry, how long before you judge and take revenge? How long before you do something? And the answer to this people in Revelation uh, maybe not very encouraging. Each of the souls was given a white robe and they were told to rest a little longer until all their co-workers, the other Christians, would be killed as they had been killed. So it's going to continue. Okay, so let me just make a few claims here before we get to some more uh, substantial things. I'll just state here as a claim that, that I think we could make a good case that God always does everything possible to prevent human suffering. And we'll try to go through some specific examples of that. Uh, another claim I'd like to make is that if we could pull the curtain back, if we had all understanding in every instance of human suffering, and we could see everything that led up to it, everything behind the scenes, uh, it would make a lot more sense than it does now. And I think also our perspective will be different. Okay, When the whole suffering of planet Earth is over, 
and we look back, again, understanding what happened, how God intervened, what the issues were, our perspective will be different than it is right now uh, in the midst of it. So let's go to Jeremiah here to try to briefly substantiate some of those claims. Um, Did God do everything that he could for the people during the time of Jeremiah? Uh, I suspect most of you here when we went through the actual story of Jeremiah and how you know, he came, he wrote it down, he said, scribe Baruch, uh, gave it to multiple kings. Okay, and what did the king do? Listened to it, cut it off with a knife, and threw it in the fire. And God said, write it again. So he wrote it again. And uh, lots and lots of uh, attempts, many prophets, trying to warn the people, trying to get the attention of the kings, and uh, the people just wouldn't listen. And also, there isn't just one voice out there. That's part of the problem. Jeremiah was deluded Uh, his effect by all of these other priests who did not know God. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? My own priest did not know me. Okay, and so we've got all these other voices saying the opposite of what Jeremiah was saying. No one really knows what's true. Everyone's confused. And so everything ended in catastrophe. We talked about how Jeremiah kept preaching, okay, but he was in prison. He was thrown in dungeon many times. Uh, He was thrown down into a well kept preaching, kept giving his message, and that finally this ended, that the people who didn't listen at all, the people who didn't do what God said, you know, just surrendered to the Babylonians, all will go well with you. They didn't. And Jeremiah still went to Egypt with these people, and then finally he was stoned to death. So, I mean, the the voice of reason, you know, God's voice was finally silenced by death, stoning. And so I think even, you know, in this little story here, uh, we could make a case that, that God really did everything possible without completely overriding the free will of the kings and all the people, that he intervened in every way possible during this time. Okay, but, but I think, again, we, we want to take a very big perspective on a subject like this. So we need to take it all the way back to the beginning. You know, we're talking about the aftermath of the sin problem. Okay, so going back to how this all started, I think, is a helpful way of of trying to understand it. So how did it all start? Well, you know, things start out pretty good in the Bible, right? We've got Adam and Eve and the perfection of uh, creation. And actually, this is meant to illustrate something else, that uh, the um, one of the dominant metaphors in the Bible is the marriage relationship. You know, we are the bride. And so this, uh, this relationship aspect that is emphasized so much in the Bible. And here is, is I think, one of the most important keys to understanding uh, the subject of suffering. If what God really wants, if we get it right down to the, to the ultimate, yeah, don't pay attention to what they're eating and drinking, but anyway, if we get down to, <laughs> to what, uh, what God is really interested in, if God is really interested in this kind of knowing relationship, intimacy, okay, and certainly the Bible paints that picture, um, what is necessary? Well, two things have to go hand in hand. There's a one-to-one relationship, love and freedom. Okay, they, they work in parallel. And just to use this as an example here, let's say that this young man is proposing. Okay, and so he, you know, asks this woman if she would marry him, and maybe she hesitates just a little bit. And so he uh, just puts a gun on the table, you know, just a little insurance, wants to... <laughs> to make sure, you know, that he'll get a yes, so uh, just a little pressure, okay? Now, her freedom has just been taken away just a little bit, hasn't it? Maybe more than just a little bit, okay? Um, Does love go up or down in that situation? 
Okay, it, it, it works together. When, when freedom is taken away, love drops uh, proportionally. Okay, this is an illustration by Tim Jennings, a, a psychiatrist, but I thought it was a good one. We get several other examples of that, this freedom and love going hand in hand. You know, you're dating someone and you're at a party and you want to get a cookie and the person comes over and says, no, you don't have that. That's not good for you and we'll not let you have a cookie. Okay, um, how long would you stay with someone like that? You know, when, when freedom is taken away, love plummets. Okay, now let's just say, I, I think I've used this example before, but uh, let's say that I am uh, omniscient and omnipresent, and I know how much each one of you are studying neuroscience. Okay, and um, well, some of you haven't read your handouts in about five days. And uh, so the phone rings, and it's me, and uh, you know... Say, I've just noticed you've not been paying much attention to neuroscience. In fact, you haven't been here for the last couple lectures. And uh, so put in a good hour and a half tonight. Okay, read the handout. In fact, this is a really good textbook. You should uh, maybe enhance your reading by um, looking at that. I notice not many of you are reading that textbook. I mean, imagine that kind of pressure is put on you. Okay, um, how do you feel about your teacher if, if you're treated that way? Now, for immature children, this is appropriate. Okay, but as people grow up and they become adults, um, they have to have freedom to exercise free will. And, um, but, but we wouldn't uh, really appreciate, I think, if, if teachers uh, treated you that way. So God certainly has the power. I mean, he could overwhelm all of us. Okay, he could come in power. He could tell us exactly what to do. Okay, he could correct every issue. could come in a big ball of light and, you know, atheism, uh, creation. He could settle all these things in a second. Okay, but the issue is not, God can't, what God really wants, if it's love and relationship and all of that, that can't be coerced, that can't be forced. That has to come as something that is freely given on our part. Uh, recently, we, we took our daughter to uh, college, PUC, and on the way back, uh, our, our new phones, I've never used those GPS devices before, but now we have one on our phone. It's really wonderful. And we stopped at a convenience store on the way back, and I didn't realize it was on, you know, speaker volume in my pocket, and just walking through the convenience store, and all of a sudden it, uh, it said, turn left and then turn right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there were people next to me, and I, I wondered what, what they thought. If I was just so micromanaged, you know, uh, that, uh, you know. But just imagine, I mean, they're probably, for each of you, there is an ideal path for the rest of today, maybe an ideal meal that would help you study better, uh, maybe a residency in one place that's slightly better than a residency in another place. Uh, do we want God to absolutely ensure that in every single moment and every decision that he's in control completely and entirely? That's the issue. But of course, Adam and Eve, that's not the beginning. Let's try to go back to the very beginning. Okay, where the sin problem began. We've talked about this war that broke out in heaven. And this is really, a, um, and we're going to talk about suffering. Why did God allow it in the first place? Okay, we have this war in heaven, and I just underlined here, I won't read the whole passage, that, that the enemy has his angels, okay, and we're, there's really not much doubt about the identity of this person. The huge dragon was thrown out, that ancient serpent. Okay, doesn't that bring us back to the tree? Named the devil or Satan that deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and all his angels with him. So uh, I think to understand human suffering, we've got to bring in uh, another um, element behind the scenes. We don't think about this very much. 
but a, a demonic reality, okay, that is very much, you know, uh, not individuals just off at the beach enjoying themselves, but actively in, engaged in this cosmic conflict. Okay, we've got angelic forces on the other side. Okay, here in Galatians, we read about the angels and powers in the heavenly world that they might learn of God's wisdom in all its different forms. And in 1 Peter, we are a spectacle for the whole world of angels. Okay, and in 1 Corinthians, the good news, these are things which even the angels would like to understand. And so Sigvi uh, Tonstead here uh, uses this uh, very simple paradigm, but I think it's, it's really important that everything that happens here, it's not just God and us, God and us. That there is a, a triangle here. There is a non-human uh, reality behind the scenes. Okay, so if we're going to understand some of the bad things that happen, it's not all just God's doing. Frequently it is our doing. Okay, but there, is, there are other forces involved in this world as well. So coming back to the war in heaven, the word polemos here, we get um, polemics from this. And this means the art or practice of argumentation or controversy. Um, in other words, and, and we talked about this more extensively before, that the, the war in heaven, this was not uh, tanks and lightning bolts and, and all of that. I mean, Satan you know, can't compete with God in, in the realm of physical power. I think uh, the, the controversy, if we really want to get a glimpse into what happened at heaven, just look what happened at the tree. Hey, what happened at the tree? Eve was deceived about who God was. God was made out to be a vindictive liar at the tree. And so I think we can kind of project that back and imagine that this is uh, what happened in the heavenly realm as well. So if we just imagine here, why didn't God uh, deal with this rebellion differently? Why didn't God put Satan on some little uh, planet a million miles away, a million light years away? Okay, well, just imagine that uh, you're another angel. You didn't rebel. Okay, what happened to Lucifer? Well, he's gone. He's way out here. Now, how would you feel about God? Okay, well, you might be happy initially, but would you, would you think, um, man, I better not uh, think a bad thought against God either. I'm going to be off on that distant planet. Um, boy, God really deals harshly with anyone who questions his ways. Uh, can you see how this might have actually worsened the rebellion? Imagine he just eliminated Lucifer. Okay, certainly had the ability to do that. Okay, but he chose not to win the great controversy by force. Okay, so now we come back to our planet, and we have this description here of in the middle of the garden is this tree. Okay, was the tree there as a temptation for Adam and Eve? Well, I think we could really make the case, again, if God is ultimately a God of freedom. He put the tree there. He gave Satan access to the tree. And he warned Adam and Eve in the severest terms. You may eat the fruit of any tree in the garden except the tree that gives knowledge of what is good and what is bad. You must not eat the fruit of that tree. If you do, you will die the same day. I mean, that's a pretty severe warning. Okay, so the, the tree could really be seen as a protection. They were free. They were allowed to hear the other side, the accusations. Okay, but they were, they were warned severely, don't go there. And there's no description of Satan you know, chasing them around behind bushes, you know, Steve, come here. Okay, only met them at the tree. Okay, and so what's really diabolical here about Satan's words um, to Eve at the tree? I mean, just listen to this. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? You know, essentially, he's saying, uh, "Boy, 
lot of nice fruit in this garden. Too bad you can't eat any. Is God really? I mean, he's kind of painting a picture. God is not a God of freedom. It's diabolical because if God was not a God of freedom, freedom, he wouldn't be there in the first place, right? So just the fact that he's there, allowed to, to spread the lies and all of this, is evidence that he is a God of freedom. And here the accusation is he's not a God of freedom. Of course, what did God really say? You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden. It's a direct contradiction to God's own words. So um, freedom here, it's, it's such a huge issue that God respects our freedom um, to an ultimate degree. And that that was the first temptation. So we come back to this here in Jeremiah, where God did everything he possibly could. And then finally, this chapter here in, in 34, it just seems to be kind of, all right, this is it. Very well then, I will give you freedom. The freedom to die by war, disease, and starvation. And I will make every nation in the world horrified at what I do to you. And of course, what did God do to them? We talked about this before. What God did to them was he allowed the Babylonians to come. He allowed the enemy to come. And uh, maybe a point that we could make here is that, you know, if God completely eliminated every possibility of suffering from the result of the sin problem, would we really see the magnitude of the sin problem? I mean, isn't part of it is, man, we, we really see that not being a part of God's kingdom, this whole mess on planet Earth, it's had horrible consequences. Okay, so let's, let's give maybe a few specific examples. Um, I'm sure all of you will see um, someone injured by a drunk driver during your time as a medical student, resident, or attending. And uh, is there any more difficult issue than this? You know, innocent person is killed by a drunk driver. Okay, but let's, let's take it back to the life of the drunk driver, who one time, I just pulled some pictures up here, was an innocent little boy with aspirations and interests, healthy interests, um, some charm, perhaps. Okay, so here's the life of this boy. And, and what I want to say here is that God, I think for each and every one of us, is at every moment, all the time, doing everything possible. And so he's actively involved in the life of this boy. But he has a father let's say, who is abusive, who beats his mother, beats him on occasion. And he really has had a horrible life growing up. And eventually his parents get divorced. And as children often do, they feel responsible and guilty. And that just creates some, some seeds that are just very difficult to ever get rid of. Some, uh, some thoughts that of um, guilt that just last a lifetime. But of course, God is involved, and so he brings people into the boy's life, teachers and so on that have a positive influence, that uh, try to get him headed in the right direction to inspire him with some new thoughts. Okay, so God is involved as well. And perhaps in this case, uh, initially things are successful. The boy goes to college, okay, he gets married, perhaps it's a very positive relationship, um, they're going to church, they become somewhat interested in God, maybe for the first time in his life, things are going well. Okay, but perhaps because of genetics or things that happened in childhood, perhaps a demonic reality um, that's involved as well, um, things happen. His work, he begins to go out and, and drinks too much and eventually becomes an alcoholic slowly over time. And um, so things are not going well. He loses his job. He's, uh, because of alcoholism, he's not showing up. And uh, so finally he's fired. And he's getting into problems with his family, with his wife. And so God is involved. 
and God perhaps stimulates a family conference, the wife and the children, sit him down and say, look, this has got to change. For all of our good, we love you. Um, let's, let's change this whole situation. Perhaps he responds. Again, this is God's prompting in all of this. Perhaps positive people, friends, a pastor, are brought into his life. And again, the tide swings in the other direction for a while. Okay, and he's, he's responding. Things are looking good. But um, again, this back and forth battle. Perhaps he slips back into alcoholism. And finally, uh, ends up as a, a man who's depressed. He's lost his wife. He doesn't have much contact with his children. And he's an alcoholic. Okay, and so the, the battle here within the, the mind of this one individual, very sadly, uh, did not turn out well. And finally ended up in an accident. Okay, and an innocent family, perhaps a young girl, was killed in this accident. We ask, you know, where was God in this situation? Well, one point to make here, I think, is, you know, we get angry at the drunk driver, as we should. But, uh, you know, from God's perspective, he really lost two of his children in this accident, right? He's been so involved in the life of this man from childhood on that this is, it's devastating for God even that the drunk driver um, was lost in this accident. I mean, they'd say nothing of the innocent girl. Okay, so, so God looks at things differently than we do. Yes, God's angry about it. Okay, but he, he lost the battle in this case. All right, so we could maybe ask some other questions. God's options against drunk driving. What would we like God to do? Uh, we could have God eliminate all alcohol. Okay, you just can't make alcohol. And drugs, they, those compounds, it's just not possible to make anything that alters our sense. Um, would we like God to uh, intervene in that way? God could intervene such that um, by decree or whatever, that little girls are never hurt by drunk drivers. You know, we look back in all the thousands and thousands of cases, there's never been a little girl hurt by a drunk driver. But of course, then wouldn't you argue, what about little boys? Okay, well, little boys are never hurt <laughs> by drunk drivers. Well, wouldn't we want to extend that? Okay, what about young people? Okay, okay, let's extend it. What age should we cut off in terms of people that are never hurt by drunk drivers? Okay, well, it's maybe just the elderly. Okay, that in every case, only people over the age of 85 are hurt by drunk drivers. Because it's, you know, but would we like if things turned out that way? How would you feel? Or we could just take it to its logical conclusion that only drunk drivers are ever injured, that there's never an innocent victim of uh, drunk drivers. Okay, and finally, we could just say, well, drunk drivers never get into accidents. Okay, they can be completely intoxicated, but somehow God always gets them home safely. So the issue here is, how much uh, do we want God to micromanage all of these things? 9-11, um, you know, people asked uh, so much, uh, where was God on 9-11? We could go through the same thing. Those hijackers, God didn't care about them. He did nothing in their whole life. Um, you know, should he have prevented them from coming into the States. They tried to get pilot's license. He blocked that at every turn. Uh, how much do we want God to intervene in all of these things? People make choices, horrible choices. Should God not allow them to make horrible choices? Again, the issue of God as a puppet master versus God respecting our freedom. So here's a, a really a great quote by C.S. Lewis uh, from his book, The Problem of Pain. And he would say, we can perhaps conceive of a world in which God corrected the results of this abuse of free will of his creatures at every moment 
so that a wooden beam became soft as grass when it was used as a weapon. And the air refused to obey me if I attempted to set up in it the sound waves that carried lies or insults. But such a world would be one in which wrong actions were impossible and in which, therefore, freedom of the will would be void. Nay, if the principles were carried out to its logical conclusion, evil thoughts would be impossible, for the cerebral matter which we use in thinking would refuse its task when we attempted to frame them. So when God made Adam and Eve, he already had pets, right? But he wanted something more. He wanted people that could respond and freely give their love. Okay, another very important uh, point in this context is God's will. Okay, we, we often say it's God's will. Uh, you will hear many patients uh, describe something horrible that happened, and it's God's will. Well, we have to be careful about saying that it is God's will. Um, the Lord's Prayer, you know, we, we say it so many times that I think sometimes the, the meaning here doesn't jump out at us. But your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, where is God's will being done? in this passage. God's will is done in heaven. What are we to pray for that God's will also be done on the earth? Most of the horrible tragedies and things that we see uh, on the earth, this is not God's will. Okay, we're to pray that God's will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. And the Lord's Prayer ends, keep us safe from the evil one. Okay, so again, there's that non-human reality that is involved behind the scenes as well. And, uh, you know, Jesus, uh, we don't talk about this much, but uh, twice he referred to Satan as the ruler or the prince of this world. And that kind of language continues on even after the cross. So, I mean, the prince of this world, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, trying to describe the Holocaust and, and we don't believe in the existence of Hitler. Or we're going to just deny all of that stuff that happened before. So God's will. You know, the disciples uh, came across this man who was born blind. And notice, they only saw two possibilities for this man's suffering. Teacher, whose sin caused him to be born blind? Was it his own or his parents' sin? Two choices. Either he sinned or his parents sinned, but God did something because of either his sin or his parents' sin. Okay, so Jesus would, would kind of try to shake that paradigm. His blindness has nothing to do with his sins or his parents' sins. Okay, and when Jesus saw other people suffering, remember the woman who was crippled, bent over, and Jesus would say, now here is this descendant of Abraham whom Satan has kept in bonds for 18 years. Should she not be released on the Sabbath? Now that doesn't mean Satan was in the spine and he was the one that actually made the curvature. But I think Jesus, what he's trying to do here is hey, let's just look back, consider what happened. Okay, we handed over the keys to planet Earth to an enemy. And look at the devastation. Look at this woman. Okay, it is the result of another prince of this world. This is his kingdom that we're seeing in action, not mine. Okay, we see uh, disasters all the time. But one happened in Jesus' day. And Jesus said, what about those 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were more sinful than other people living in Jerusalem? No, I can guarantee you that they weren't. So when we see earthquakes or hurricanes inevitably there's going to be a pastor somewhere who's going to say that God is punishing the people for this or that thing that they're doing in that area. Okay, but here we've got a natural disaster. This tower fell over, and Jesus said, you know, it didn't have anything to do with the sinfulness of the people. So what do we see God doing? 
Here in Matthew 5, God makes sun to shine on bad and good people alike and gives rain to those who do good and to those who do evil. So I'm afraid we see God rather just indiscriminately just pouring out uh, good, bad alike on all people rather than just selectively, you know, the ones who trust him. I mean, look at Abel all the way down to John like we went through. So God's weapons in this war are not coercive force, I would say. His weapons are ultimately love and truth. And I'm sorry I left off the reference for this, but I think it's, it's a really good quote here, that God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one can cast a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. That's a pretty powerful state. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used God's government is moral, and truth and love are to be the prevailing power. It's what we see in Jeremiah. Truth and love lived out in the life of Jeremiah. Those were the the means and the methods to try to change the mindset of the people. Well, we have to get to some good news um, here. So I'm going to just continue on, even though this is a long Bible study, because I think these points left out um, could perhaps paint a wrong picture. I think if we want to find God's will, We have to see it in Jesus. The only time, I would say, that we clearly see God's will on earth is during during those three and a half years when Jesus walked the earth. And what we see in those years is people being healed who didn't ask for it. Okay, Jesus just indiscriminately took care of everyone. There was this funeral procession, and a young man who died was a widow's only son. A large crowd from the village was with her, and Jesus just happened to be walking by. And when the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry. And then, of course, he healed the young man. So I think we could say in every case, you know, a young person killed by a drunk driver, how does God feel about this? What would God like to do about this? We see it in the life of Jesus. Don't cry and let me bring him back to life. Okay, what about uh, Malchus? Peter cut off his ear. Now, did Malchus asks to be healed? I mean, he's an enemy, right? He's coming to take Jesus captive. What did Jesus do? Picked up the ear, healed the man. Okay, someone who didn't ask to be healed and someone who was openly an enemy coming to capture Jesus. And we give lots of examples of people who didn't ask for it and Jesus just in the immediate situation uh, healed. Okay, so that's God's will for good and bad alike. And then finally, a man suffering from a dreaded skin disease, leprosy, came to Jesus, knelt down, begged for help. If you want to, you can make me clean. In the description here, Jesus was filled with pity. I mean, the writer of uh, Mark, um, you know, what do we imagine? He was filled with pity. How do we know? I mean, whatever it was about the facial expression, uh, the body language of Jesus, He was filled with pity, conveyed that sense. I think we could say, again, in every instance of suffering, that God's heart is filled with pity. And, of course, we have God himself. I think, you know, if you're with patients who are suffering, don't try to take them through a big intellectual exercise about war that began in heaven and all of that. I mean, there might be a time for that, but uh, that's probably not going to help in an immediate circumstance. I think it is helpful, though, if our picture of God is such that we see that God is not off on a distant throne observing 
the suffering of this world. He got into the mix. He became a human. And he suffered, I'm sure, more than any of us uh, will ever suffer. And so God suffered. That's helpful if you're going through suffering. Now, uh, a last point, because this could leave the impression that, boy, we could all walk out of here and drop dead from meningitis, and there's no protection, and it's just all random. And so I have to make this last point. Does God not intervene at all? Does he do nothing? And I really love this story in Daniel, okay? Because, uh, well, here's the verse here. The prayer of a good person has a powerful effect. In other words, we can intervene, okay? We are involved in this. So we have the story of Daniel. And um, I'll just uh, summarize this briefly. But things weren't going well. The people weren't going back to Jerusalem. And so he prayed earnestly. And nothing happened. 21 days, unanswered prayer. What was going on? And then finally the angel comes and says, I've come in answer to your prayer, that unanswered prayer, seemingly. Okay, and the, the curtain that is pulled back, and I wish we had this curtain pulled back on every story in the Bible, but just listen to the description. Okay, since you prayed, Daniel, the angel prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Now, who's that? The angel prince of the kingdom of Persia. And then Michael, one of the chief angels, came to help me. Now I have to go back and fight the guardian angel of Persia. Who are all these individuals that are just coming onto the scene? After that, the guardian angel of Greece will appear. There is no one to help me except Michael, Israel's guardian angel. He is responsible for helping and defending me. So all of these other, uh, you know, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, the guardian angel of Greece, this can be translated the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia or Greece. I, I think this is just a little glimpse. There are things behind the scenes. Remember that third uh, edge of the triangle, the non-human reality. This is a complex, complicated world, and the demonic is actively involved as well. But what I would like to say about Daniel's prayer is that we have the capacity to intervene in this cosmic conflict. Okay, when we align ourselves with God's will, we become actively involved and it actually changes. It actually does have an effect. But again, to pull the curtain back and see all the things that are happening behind the scenes, we can't spell that out in every detail. But we have to trust God and believe that uh, these things are happening, that he is actively involved uh, in our daily lives. Okay, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for um, so many stories that try to enlarge this picture of human suffering and your involvement. Most of all, God, we uh, just appreciate that, um, that you did come, and uh, not as a distant God, but as God who came in human form, and uh, that as we observe you suffering, that certainly that helps us in our daily lives and as we see others that suffer. And please help us to treat people as Jesus treated them, and to help relieve suffering in the world. Amen.